from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Jana Hannigan on June 7, 2017. Jana is a mother, educator, librarian, and author. Her latest book is called What Good Will Come. We talk about the inspiration behind the book, and she reads an excerpt in the interview. I started the interview by asking Jana where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. Actually, I had a very cosmopolitan childhood. My father was in the Air Force. He was a colonel. He was a fighter pilot in World War II and had a military lifestyle. And by the time I was born, we were living in Washington, D.C. Then when I was five, we moved to Turkey. So I spent the ages of five and six in the country of Turkey, in Ankara, the capital. So... I'm very grateful for that experience. Listen to the call to prayer every day from the mosques and just had this very multicultural experience while I was there. Instead of going to the the elementary school on base, my mother enrolled me in the British Embassy School and the Pakistani Embassy School. And um, while living there, we traveled in our Volkswagen bus all through Europe, went to Israel, saw the Weeping Wall, Abraham's tomb, swam in the Dead Sea, saw so many things in a very, very short period of time. Actually, my family was Mormon, and my parents were converts to the Mormon faith. But I'm so grateful that my mom went to that trouble and adventure to take us to all those different countries And I'm also grateful for the way religion was practiced in my home. The Mormon faith is a very friendly faith and very strong ties to family. I learned a sense of reverence and a sense of prayer and just a a really strong moral foundation. As an adult, I joined the Baha'i faith about, say, about 14 years ago. When I moved to Hood River, Oregon, but I now have Mormon neighbors that just live one, two, three, four houses down, and we get together once a week to say prayers together. So that's a wonderful, wonderful aspect to my neighborhood life. I'm so grateful that I'm able to get together. I look forward to it very much. You know, we had someone pass away in the neighborhood a couple of weeks ago, and we were able to get together and say prayers for him, and yeah. Tell me your spiritual travel that took you from being a a Mormon to becoming a Baha'i. When I went to college, you know, which I think is very common, really maybe for any religion, you know, you leave home for the first time and you're questioning things and exploring things. And so I did not practice Mormonism once I went to college. You know, I didn't attend seminary or go to church anymore at that point. But 
you know, unlike a lot of people, they just sort of, you know, throw it all in the trash and just like, I'm overcooked. I'm overbaked. I don't want anything to do with religion or God or don't even talk to me about that. You know, I didn't feel bitterness. I just, I felt like I needed to see with my own eyes and seek in my own way. So I always clung to prayer, always. And I still held my belief in my creator. I'm really grateful for that. So let Mm -hmm. me ask you something there. You were basically a practicing Mormon until you entered college and then you drifted away as you described. Were your parents aware of of this transition that you found yourself? Like a lot of times happens in our growth and development, you know, my relationship with my parents was not very good when I left home. And so I don't think they were aware of what my views were or thoughts. My mom especially would have felt very upset and hurt. It just wasn't possible to have a spiritual conversation. It just, that was not possible. I think they were aware that I was not going to church anymore, but I don't think they were aware of anything beyond that, you know, and there wasn't a relationship built enough to where we could have a spiritual conversation. So I had my first marriage and with two children and I, you know, continued definitely still believing in a creator and more importantly, believing in the harmony of science and religion, even though I didn't know what that meant. And also believing that, you know, we were all seeking the same truth and we're all like all religions are praying to the same God and just feeling so much dismay and distress at the fighting and the the division, even within families on religion, which is where I think most people just feel so turned off by what they call quote unquote religion, which it turns out really isn't religion. Those two things always just rang so clear in my heart, like science, God would not ask me to give up my reason in order to love creation. I'm not buying that. Also, we're all on the same team here. We're all just trying to do the best we can and be better and better people. Like that just seems so obvious to me. And yet I had never heard of the Baha'i faith, not at all. Then fast forward several years, I have another marriage and one more child at that point. We move to Hood River, Oregon. The very first human being I met in Hood River, Oregon was a Baha'i. Her name was Elizabeth. And that's the first time I'd ever heard of the Baha'i faith. I met her because we were renting their house. We were going to move into the house that she was moving out of. So we sort of had to coordinate this move together, and she and I got to know each other really well. And she was so friendly and gregarious and just so personable and continues to be a great friend. You know, and we get together for tea or coffee, and we talk about some of the concepts of Baha'i faith, which I was a little bit resistant to, kind of like a lukewarm, I guess, you know, but still they all just kept ringing true. Like, yeah, that's what, that's what I've always thought too, you know. Then a year later, we're looking for a house to buy. There's this one house that my husband and I have always sort of admired. Like we drive by it and we sort of this old fashioned craftsman house and like, yeah, what is that house? That house is so cool. 
so we're looking to buy a house and we can't, you know, we just keep finding all these, you know, not very attractive places. And then our realtor calls us up one night and, Hey, this new house just came on the market. And my husband drives right out to go see it. And he calls me on the phone, John, it's that house. <laughs> it's that house that we like so much. And like we were there the next day, we went straight to that house. Well, it turns out that that house was also occupied by a Baha'i family. In fact, the only other Baha'i family in this whole town. So we went from one Baha'i house directly to the other Baha'i house. (laughs) I just remember like walking into this home that we still live in, you know, with the realtor looking around and just, there was just this spirit and just this feel. And I mean, there was no question that, I mean, in my mind and heart. And then while we're standing there talking to the realtor, I hear this over my shoulder, is that the Hannigans? And I turn around and there's Elizabeth walking up the driveway, you know, Elizabeth, my friend whose house we had just been living in. I'm like, what are you doing here? And she's like, well, this is the Puffins. I'm like, who are the Puffins? I'm like, well, they're the other Baha'is that live in town. <laughs> so we bought story. that house. Yeah. And it was like God just had his hand on our head and was like, we're going to put you here and then we're going to put you here. My daughter was born upstairs in this house and we've lived here for 17 years. You know, it was a couple of years later that... Uh, after seeking and studying, investigating the Baha'i faith and attending activities. Back in those days, we had what we called Baha'i school, which is sort of like Sunday school. Through those activities, you know, so embracing of my children and our family. I do want to mention here that my husband is not a Baha'i and that is actually agnostic and very scientifically minded. So the Baha'i precepts on science, the harmony of science and spirit, were just so, so important to me and very attractive to him. Anyway, over the course of a couple of years, I found myself teaching the Baha'i precepts to other people when I still was not myself a Baha'i. And just finally, like, I just said to myself, oh my goodness, okay, what's going on here? I think I'm so there. All this, these teachings have filled my heart and my mind and my thinking. I sat down and consulted with my husband and said, hey, you know, I think I'm going to declare and become a Baha'i. And he said, you know, Jonna, that's fine. I think I would be happy raising our children with the Baha'i faith. So that was about 14 years ago. This is pretty much the only community that I've lived in as a Baha'i. It's a very, very special community here in the Columbia Gorge. Did you notice any kind of change in your perspective or direction in your life during that two and a half, three year period when you were investigating the Baha'i faith and and then deciding to become a Baha'i? Well, as I was investigating, I think the biggest change was that the influence on the family, because um, my husband and one, two, three of my children would, and myself, would attend our Baha'i school. And that had a great influence on all of us as a whole family. You know, we all enjoyed attending and just were so lovingly embraced by this community, particularly the children, like all the activities were child centered. That makes this community special and unique is that they're very clear on keeping things child and youth centered. So there, there was a place for us, you know? So I would say that was, that would be a change. So a greater unity 
in our family. Mm. When I declared, I remember the first tests were in not allowing religious discussions to become divisory. Those were the first and immediate tests that I had because I, that was why I thought the Baha'i faith was so beautiful was that using our religion to be divisory in any way, you know, Baha'u'llah's brought unity. This is the time of unity and the teachings by which we can accomplish unity. But in general, we're just so accustomed to a religious anything even the word religion just instantly is divisory, you know, people draw their lines in the sand. So that was my first test and challenge was how to sidestep those or avoid them or navigate through them. Now, was this with anybody? That yeah. You had become an adherent of a religion. It then all of a sudden came up for you. Yeah, yeah. Like in the past, before I, you know, knew of the Baha'i writings and Baha'u'llah's teachings. Baha'u'llah um, being the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, yeah. Right, yeah. I might have been tempted to engage in a argument or just, you know, brush the other person off or just push them away. But here I had all these beautiful teachings and I was being called to bring about a transformation and I had been given this beautiful vision of how, you know, in re the reality, the fundamental reality is that we're all one. And yet being tested, like immediately to get dr being drawn into argument. It was good practice. It was good practice. <laughs> Whatever you practice, you get a little bit better at one at a time. You've written a children's book called What Good Will Come. And before we get into the book, have you written before? Do you have writing in your background? What inspired you to even write something to be published? So let me start a little further back. So the arts are the theme of my life. My mother's an artist, and I've been very involved in all art forms since I was a child. Um, was thankfully very encouraged and supported in all those things. Visual arts, dance, writing, music. My scholarship to my undergraduate degree was in the arts, the visual arts, and then I went on to study dance in my graduate degree and lots and lots of teaching of the arts, teaching to children, teaching to adults, special needs. I'd say those two things, teaching and the arts, are very strong in my family of origin. So I'd always been a good writer. You know, my, my teachers had always praised my writing. It's an interesting development. So I was, you know, a visual artist for the most part of my life and then became a dancer. And then I read a lot of children's books like children's books were a huge part of my childhood obviously very important part of my childhood and then when I had children a pillar of you know raising my children was reading to them every night and those are some of our very precious memories all those books that we read together and <laughs> I have these incredibly talented nieces who are just so intelligent and creative and talented and I 
I started like encouraging them. Oh, you, you should, you should write children's books. You know, you're just so good. You should write children's books. You would be so good at that. And I kept repeating it. And finally I realized that I was actually talking to myself instead of talking to them. And I was like, Jana, you're the one who wants to write children's books. It was actually when I went on pilgrimage, members of the Baha'i faith are encouraged to do in their lifetime. And I think the pilgrimage that we're most familiar with is the pilgrimage that the um, Muslims take. I guess it's similar in that it's very special and very spiritual, but it's in a a different place, of course. So the Baha'i World Center is in Haifa, Israel, and our beautiful gardens and shrines and our administrative center is there. So Baha'is are encouraged to go on pilgrimage at least once if they can. And some people go many times, which actually I did not know. I did not know that until I went on pilgrimage. My pilgrimage was really special for me. I went by myself, and um, it came at a time when I was just at a really low point in my life. While I was there, it just became clear that my heart's desire was to write books for children. It was my heart's desire, like deepest desire I'd actually already written sort of the draft of this current book that you just mentioned, What Good Will Come. My heart just was really confirmed being on pilgrimage, which is nine days, a wonderful opportunity to say prayers and just learn about the history of the faith. Yeah, actually, the prayers are probably the most potent part. I mean, it's just so spiritually potent. One of the most special things is that um, you get to say prayers for other people. It's such a privilege. I actually had had many friends who'd said prayers for me or my children or my loved ones. So I had a notebook and very carefully took notes of all the people and asked them very actively, is there anyone you want me to pray for while I'm there? What specifically do you want me to pray for if you want, if you want to share that with me? And I, I still have that notebook. One of them was a request from a friend who wanted to marry somebody. And he asked, would I please say the marriage prayer for he and this person? And then about five years later, when they did get married, I pulled that page out of my notebook and sent it to them for their wedding present. Mm. (laughs) That notebook is very special and important to me. I was actually living abroad when I went on pilgrimage, and then we came back to Hood River. So I had this manuscript. It was about the Lotus Temple, which is the Baha'i temple in India. There's only one Baha'i temple on every continent right now. So there's really only one in North America. It's in Wilmette, Illinois, outside of Chicago. And the one in Asia is in India. And it's in the shape of a lotus flower. Can you outline the story of what good will come? Sure. In our community here, we have some youth, awesome youth who have gone out into the world to serve. So it's encouraged in Baha'i families after high school for youth to spend some amount of time in service, volunteer service, somewhere It can be in the United States. It can be somewhere out in the world. Such a fundamental view of the Baha'i teachings is that our station in life really is in servitude to humanity and to build a life based on a pattern of servitude. 
which is very different from, you know, the way the, the world sees things really, which is sort of personal ambition and so forth. The Baha'i writings, Baha'u'llah teaches that really the only station we can have in this life is to be servants of God and servants of humanity. So um, the youth in our community are encouraged to do something after high school, usually before they go to college or sometimes after college or during college. Anyway, sometime before they get married and, you know, have a job and house and all that. So two of the youth in our community, uh, Reed Harvey and Hayden Weiler, did, I believe it was two or three months of service at the Lotus Temple in New Delhi, India. The Lotus Temple, um, like I mentioned, is the only Baha'i temple in Asia. And it's located smack in the middle of this huge, bustling, dirty, noisy city. And there in this like swath of green is this quiet <laughs> white temple that's built in a shape of a lotus flower. All the Baha'i temples have nine sides. So nine petals of the flower create the nine entrances to the temple. Anyway, their duty at the temple, their, their act of service was to work in the shoe room. It's the custom in that region of the world and many other regions of the world, too, that you remove your shoes when you enter a holy place, which is, you know, very common in many, many cultures. At the Lotus Temple, of course, everyone is welcome at the Baha'i temples. They're for everybody. They're meant to serve the communities where they reside, and people are free to worship in their own way. It's also very beautiful and serene, so it attracts tens of thousands of people every day. Like more people go to the Lotus Temple in a day than go to the Eiffel Tower, for example. It's India, it's a high-density population, so tens of thousands of people are going there every day. On Gandhi's birthday, apparently, you can get you know, 50,000, 100,000 people. All of them have to take their shoes off. So you can imagine that the shoe room gets very, very busy. So Hayden and Reed came back after serving in the shoe room and they just, they had these just funny stories about, you know, the way people behave when there's a, a crowd and sort of the mob mentality and their shoes and their funny little behaviors and so forth. So anyway, that act of service sparked this idea in my mind, like, okay, so what a wonderful setting to introduce like the harmony of the world's religions all these people from all these different backgrounds and faiths are coming to one place but they all have to take off their shoes you know and in the course of this story we get to meet all these different people and especially in india that's just so so diverse so rich and colorful and so i sort of wrote the story backwards, like, okay, one situation that Hayden described was that sometimes they'd get just so overwhelmed with shoes that people would just start throwing their shoes in a pile and they'd just get these just mountains of shoes and it was just chaos, you know? It was like they were trying to control chaos at all times, but sometimes chaos took over. So in my mind, I thought, okay, so let's tell this story backwards. You got a pile of shoes from all these different people, all these different religions, different countries, different backgrounds, they all have to get their shoes back somehow. 
but how did they end up in this pile in the first place? So I went backwards from that. So we start the story with the main character, whose name is Pasha Dev. Pasha lives in New Delhi, and he drives a taxi, and he comes home from work, and he looks up at the sky, and it's searing hot. But he predicts to the sky, he says, it's going to rain tonight. I know it. And he goes up to his apartment, his little apartment, and in through the window jumps this mangy cat. And the cat, it's his cat. And he has taken in this cat, and he loves his cat, and he just dotes on this cat. It's his companion, and they eat together, and he treats him like a friend almost, you know. So they sit and they talk, and while they're talking, Pasha sort of boasts about his service that he does at the Lotus Temple and his service is that he works in the shoe room. He sort of puffs himself up and says, on Gandhi's birthday, we had 100,000 visitors and I have never lost a single shoe and you just don't know how important my job is. So they're sitting there together and then all of a sudden one little raindrop beats on the window and then a few more and then just seconds later, just this deluge hits the city which in India, you know, a rainstorm is dramatic. You know, it's a big deal when there's a huge rainstorm. It just, the streets flood and trees fall down. And so the cat, there's this mystical moment where the cat jumps from his lap into the windowsill and he looks back at Pasha and this kind of look in his eye. And Pasha's like, no, don't go out the window. And he jumps out the window. So our hero, Pasha, leaves the window open all night, hoping that the cat will come back safely. And because the window was open and because it was raining and because he was so worried, he wakes up the next day with a cold, terrible cold. And that's the day he goes to work at the shoe room at the Lotus Temple. So he goes to the shoe room and he's just feeling miserable. You know, he starts feeling more and more sick and he can't see and his eyes burn and um, he just feels terrible. And then he has this sneezing fit and he can't stop sneezing. And when he stops sneezing, he sees before him, everyone has thrown their shoes into this big pile. Their system for giving and taking shoes is all broken down. So he's just demoralized. He's crushed. His soul is crushed. He's made this mess of shoes. So then he has to figure out how to give all the shoes back to the right people. So in the course of the second half of the book, he's figuring out who gets what shoes. And as he's doing that, we get to meet all these different characters that have come to the Lotus Temple until he's left with one last pair of shoes. And that brings a surprise ending to the whole story. Which you're not going to be a spoiler. I'm not going to spoil it, no. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is an illustrated children's book, correct? Yes. So you had said that you were a visual artist. Did you consider that you would illustrate the book yourself? I did consider that. I seriously considered it, but I decided not to do that because, one, it would have taken so long for me to do them justice to do it right there were other projects that I was working on I actually prayed and meditated on it and I just felt like that was the right thing to do to focus my time on 
these other projects instead of trying to do the illustrations. So, mm. so yeah, um, Henry Warren did the illustrations. He really researched the location. Like it's very, very accurate. I was really pleased to see that, like the, the, the way the shoe room is situated in, into the sidewalk and the temple, the grounds and everything. So would you like to read an excerpt from the book? Okay, well, let's try this. Oh, it actually has the title in it, too. So that actually might. So Pasha, despite his misery, has um, managed to give away, return all of the shoes that were unclaimed. Uh, I'll just really quickly explain. So at the shoe room, the way they keep track of all these shoes is this system where you take your shoes off, you give it to the shoe room person, and they give you a token. And then they put your shoes in a cubby that matches that number. Then when I'm ready to leave the temple, I give them my token. They go to that number cubby and give me back my shoes. So it's very smooth and organized, and it takes definitely more than one person to run the shoe room. But in my story, I just have this one person. So Pasha has managed to return all the shoes and sort of straighten up the mess that was created, except for one pair. Pasha set the shoes on the counter and sized them up. Plain brown with just one distinguishing feature. They were enormous. Simple, thought Pasha. I have only to look for a man with unusually large feet. Almost immediately, a pair of big feet and bare legs walked towards him. Here he is now. Sir, are these your shoes? Pasha called to him. But as the man came nearer, Pasha saw the red markings on his face, his saffron robes and long hair. He was a sadhu, one who's given up all worldly things. The shoes couldn't be his. The sadhu stopped and smiled and leaned way down and examined the shoes for a very long time, then looked straight into Pasha's eyes. You are asking the wrong question, my friend, the sadhu patiently replied. Your real question is, who do these shoes belong to? The question hung in the air as they stood nose to nose. Pasha, certain that his soul was being searched, flinched and stepped back a bit. Then the sadhu suddenly stood up and said, But I want to say that you are doing a fine job. He gave Pasha a hearty handshake and shuffled off on his bandy legs. Pasha glowered. Perhaps I will become a sadhu. Then I will never have to see another pair of shoes ever again. The end of his shift was nearing, and as each minute passed, he grew more anxious, unable to bear the embarrassment of leaving his post with unclaimed shoes. His eyes burned, his head pounded, his body ached, and into the fertile soil of this wretchedness, the seeds of self-pity grew like jungle vines. Then he remembered the storm. Mustafa, that's the name of the cat. For a moment, his heart sank. Would he ever see him again? But then he thought, this is his doing. I treat him like a prince, and he repays me by running into a storm. Then he was angry with everyone, whoever came to the temple, selfish, impatient oafs who can't wait in line. Finally, in his heartache and woe, he allowed himself the unthinkable. Why do I even bother coming to the temple? I should sit and do nothing on Sunday like everyone else. What good has come of this? What good? And that's where you get the surprise ending right after that. <laughs> you hold us in suspense. <laughs> so, Jana, where can people find your book? It is available at the Baha'i Publishing, the Baha'ibookstore.com. Do you have anything in the works? I do. 
This next one would be middle grade fiction that I've been working on and getting lots of really good confirmations on that. But, you know, writing a book, it's a big ship that doesn't turn around very quickly. It's, it's, it goes very slowly, but it's something that I'm very, very excited about. And currently I am a children's librarian, so I am surrounded with books for children every day. So you mentioned you're a children's librarian, so tell me about your work with children in your community. I was a teacher in the Arts and Education program, which is a state program here in Oregon, and I taught in the schools here for about 10 years doing rhythm and dance and programs in schools with artist residencies. And then when I became a Baha'i, one of the important activities that Baha'is do in their neighborhoods, because we don't have a clergy in the Baha'i faith, the activities are really run or provided by the Baha'is themselves or alongside other community members who want to uplift their neighborhoods and communities. You don't have to be a Baha'i to do any of these activities, but two specific activities that I've been involved in are what we call children's spiritual education classes and the junior youth spiritual empowerment program. So I think this is like the 13th year that I've been teaching children's class and junior youth groups off and on or supporting other people doing those activities. It actually was through my service to my neighborhood and community that gave me such a uh, preparation, wonderful preparation for my role as a children's librarian, which I was hired about five years ago in that role. It really helps me understand how to consult and cooperate with my coworkers and how to consult with the community to really identify needs and understand needs. But also these programs they are offered because there's a beautiful quote from the Baha'i writings, and it is, regard man as a mind rich in gems of inestimable value. Education can alone cause it to reveal its treasures and enable mankind to benefit therefrom. So education, Baha'u'llah is saying, is alone the only thing that can allow these gems that are inside of each of us to come forth so that this world can benefit from them, which so desperately needs them. Desperately, all these these children that we work with and youth, they have these capacities that the world is in desperate need of right now. But they can't come forth without education. And education, in the Baha'i view, is a material and a spiritual education. Those two things need to go together because we are those two things. We are a material, a material being. We have this physical body, but we have a soul and a spirit. We have all these intangible things like our kindness and our love and our generosity and our humility. Those things, we can't hear them or touch them with our physical measurements, but we know that they're there. Like we know without a doubt when someone loves us, we know. So these programs, the children's class program and the junior youth spiritual empowerment program are intended to be spiritual education, to go hand in hand with children's material education. And they're open to all faiths, 
no faith, seculars, they're open to the whole neighborhood. And our community has been very blessed in having youth who are of very different backgrounds. We've got one Baha'i youth only, and the other ones are Catholic and sort of non-denominational who have taken on the junior youth group. It's just so wonderful to see these youth. Really, they just want so much to make the world a better place. And in our children's class, we have Muslim children, we have Catholic children, we have sort of non-denominational children, we have Christian children, we have atheist children, we have all of them are welcome and we all come together. And those who don't say prayers, that's fine. We can still be together while someone else is saying a prayer. And we can be reverent and quiet and show respect when someone else is praying. But learning how we can all be together, we don't all have to agree on everything, but we can still be together. And coming together to be better and better people and find better ways to serve our communities and make our neighborhoods better, get to know our neighbors better. So those activities really prepared me very well for working at the library. Not only just because I see the same people there, but just understanding that, you know, these little children that come in to the library are more than just patrons. You know, they are minds rich in gems of inestimable value. And, you know, inside of them are God's attributes. And some of them have an special large amount of certain attributes, and that's what makes them unique and special. But it's a wonderful way to look at youth and look at children, because that is actually a more real and accurate way of seeing them with those eyes. Well, Jana, I want to thank you so much for sharing your work and thoughts with us. Thank you. Yeah, you're most welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jana Hannigan, author of the book, What Good Will Come. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Because you shine and say,
deep in a dream she cried and stretched till the moistened shell of her casing burst fingers silently reaching out through the cold dark She burst through the dark to the blazing light Tree of peace You may be just a sapling now Still I know your destiny Races from different places. 
desert rose I watched the sun rise up above me And if I am a mountain rose The morning sun comes from below me Under one sky We get our light from the same sun Wherever we are We get our light from the same sun wherever it rises. And if I am a northern rose, I watch the sun walk across the southern sky. And if I am a southern rose, the northern sun lights up my world. Under one sky, we get our light from the same sun wherever we are. Under one sky, we get our light from the same sun wherever it rises. I'm not confused by motion. I will not lose my range. I know my own reflection. Just for change, take me from northern forest to the southern fields, and I will turn my face to the sun in any place where it rises. If I am a lover, I will recognize a rose in any land. If I love the roses, I'll accept an offered rose from any hand. Join in the c 
www.valleyfreeradio.org